You're listening to the She Lift Project podcast, a show dedicated to helping women achieve higher levels of success in the workplace. No matter where you are in your career, we want to help you grow. Now here's your host, Cynthia Kirkpatrick, a CPA, CFP, and Senior Financial Advisor at Mineta Group. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the SheLift Project Podcast. I'm Cynthia Kirkpatrick, and I'm happy to have you with us. And we're excited to have Christy Jones with us today. Christy, sales coach, expert, extraordinaire. What I loved looking at reading is your take no prisoners approach that really stood out to me when helping companies and individuals drive their sales and customer success. You do a lot of presentations, speaking, podcasts and upcoming book just so many things going on in your history track record and to come so so excited for you to join to talk about your story uh, what you're doing now how you got here and tips tricks along the way and also at some point we'll get to this but any differences you've seen and and how women approach sales strengths opportunities so anyway uh First, welcome. Thanks for coming. Cynthia, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Great. Well, I talked a little bit about the sales, what you're doing now. It's, it's. I'm sure there's a lot of opportunities for sales coaching and mm. helping companies, but also a, a bunch of different ways to do it. And so mm. you work with venture capital firms a lot and you come in. And so tell me more about that and what you're doing right now. Yeah, um, so I'm in my seventh year of business and really been blessed that 100% of my clients come from referrals. Um, Part of them come from VC companies that I have relationships with who've just invested normally a Series A round. So a few million, I say, just a few million here and there. Um, And then the rest come founder to founder. So founders who talk to each other. Um, But the startup world is is actually smaller than you think it is. um, And I don't really play in the Silicon Valley world. So I do a lot of the Midwest. um, And then I have a few European clients as well. So I really do appreciate, um, I think the reason that the kind of the difference is I get my hands dirty, I say. So I don't just come in and evaluate everything and give you your playbook and then walk away. Um, I'm actually in there working with you, helping you with your CRM system, helping you document and build out the processes. So I think you have to get your hands dirty at this stage. So a lot of these companies are coming out of what we call founder-led sales. So up until getting that funding from the VC um, or some angel investment, a lot of them are doing all, they're doing the sales, right? They're the first salesperson, which is actually the best idea. That's the best thing to do. Um, they can figure out their go-to-market messaging. Do they have product market fit? You know, what are the objections? What are the things that may need to be improved within the product? So I always recommend that founders do their first um, stint as an AE or an account executive. But at some point, you've got to walk away from that, right? They're going to have to fundraise again. They've got other things that they need to worry about. So they can't play full-time sales rep forever. Um, But once they get that funding, normally the VCs will insist that they step out of the sales role um, and we build out the sales team. So it sounds like, in layman's terms, (laughs) to go from, you know, one small shop, they want to grow, they've gotten some funding, and they really need help getting to that next level because if they tried to muddle through it it would take too long or wouldn't get there so you're able to come in use your expertise from doing it with a lot of different companies and say okay here's where we're at here's where we need to go and help them analyze it and implement it and really at a faster pace get to that next level to grow 
and bring on more revenue, bring on more salespeople. Is that an easy explanation? Yeah, I mean, I called it. I'm a, I, I say I'm an extra extra set of expertise hands. So yes, I mean, I think a lot of people. Um, I think part of it is the speed of which things can get done when you know what you're doing. But a lot of founders are tech founders, so they don't have a sales or marketing background. And so as a result of that, you know, like I say, like you you have a limited, you may have gotten 5 million, 8 million, 10 million, sounds like a lot of money, but it goes really quickly. Um, we spend it on people and product, I say. So, you know, hiring people costs a lot of money. Founders may or may not have even been paying themselves at that point. So that's an opportunity for them to start making some income, but it goes really quickly. So you don't want to make mistakes in hiring. You don't want to, you know, take twice as long to get your processes together. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, um, I really want to come in and help them do it right and do it right the first time, and then do it more quickly than they might otherwise be doing it. The VC firms want their return on investment as quickly as possible. Right. So <laughs> patience is not part of our game. Well, and you said you've been doing this for about seven years. Yeah, I've been, I've been in tech sales. So I was a VP of sales going back to 2000. But seven years ago, I started Sales Acceleration Group. Um, and I'd already kind of picked my swim lane. I'd already picked startups, early startups kind of as my swim lane in, in the sales leadership realm. So I thought, well, I can help one company at a time and I can only affect so many people at a time. But you know, now I run about four or five clients at any given time. And so I can impact a lot of people. And is it, you started your own business at this point, solo shop, you, and they're buying and they're getting you. That's right. Um, yeah, solopreneur. So that's always the big challenge is I've got some 1099s. So I go out into the marketplace, if you will. Um, unfortunately, there are a lot of um, people in between gigs right now, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so um, I've on a few Slack channels. And so I need, um, a lot of times I need recruiters. I do a lot of hiring for my clients, but I'm really too busy now to do I bet the resumes and do phone screens. So I go out into the marketplace and find 1099 contractors in between in between gigs. So like even today, I'm starting a new hiring process or project um, with a client, a new client in the UK. Um, they want to hire their first director of revenue. And I went out to the Rev Genius Slack channel and posted on there, which I have done in the past and had great success with. And lo and behold, an out of work VP of sales and an out of work um, head of talent acquisition both approached me. And so I'm going to have both of them will help me with this next uh, round of hires. So, you know, I mean, I don't really it, the whole decision about scaling, having employees needing to provide insurance. It's a little daunting. Right. Um, and I and you know, I, I say I lead a blessed life and I like my life a little flexible. Um, so I think the 1099 thing seems to work out for everybody. And I've really again, I've really lucked into great people that that have been able to help me. So when I and same thing with people who are in the marketing world. So a lot of times my clients need content. So we need blog posts and white papers written. I have a, a team of, of freelancers in that world that I reach out to. So that's I've been able to piece it together. Um, and I think it, it's a win win for everybody. Yeah, at that point, it almost sounds like I'm thinking of it from a business perspective. If you had a group of people, more than one, you might be limited into who you could pull in and their expertise. But that's this right. way, you have so many contacts outside that you can really say, Oh, I haven't used so-and-so for months, but now they're the person I need to pull in. That's right. So you can do that, which adds probably to that flexibility and that uh, uh, the ability to shift quickly for not what you need, but what your client needs. That's right. Yeah. And I haven't had a bad experience yet. I've literally been able to, I think I think it was beginning of last week that I reached out on the Rev Genius channel under the job category and posted, and it was very, you know, very clear about it. Like this is probably a three week gig. Um, you know, it's in, you know, I, I pay accordingly um, and it's not a get rich quick scheme, but 
but people, again, if you've got time on your hands and you've been laid off, like that's something that happens to your self-esteem. And so you need to feel productive. In fact, the um, the head of the talent acquisition um, that had just been laid off, she's like, I'm going crazy. Uh-huh. You know? And she said, you know, I've been helping people with their resumes and charging a little bit for that and doing interview prep. Um, but she said, like, what you're looking for is what I do, had done every day. This is the core of what I do. And you could tell, like, you know, it, it does, it really, like, it, even if no fault of your own, which a lot of people have been laid off recently, no fault of their own, it still does something to your self-esteem, right, in, in your confidence level. And so, you know, those people are more than happy and do a phenomenal job for me. And then I, and then really, I, I took that person and I, I have another client that I'm looking for a VP of sales for. They're using a staffing firm. So I sent her resume to the person I was working with at the staffing firm. I thought if I can help, I will. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another gentleman that I met with that I did decide not to move forward with, but I he was looking for a very specific swim lane of a VP of sales. So I sent his resume to two of the VCs that I work with and said, hey, I don't know if any other companies are looking for this. So, you know, I think a lot of times we talked about before we got on the air today about networking um, and putting the right people together. And so, you know, all the people that I talked to today, including the, the gentleman and the woman who are going to help me, um, you know, I want to be able to see if you could, I could use my network to help and be of assistance. Yeah, it's like know what you're good at and then be, have I don't know, the courage, but be smart enough, humble enough to bring in those who can pr- provide more in the areas that aren't your skill set. That's right. Yeah. And, the, and they, have, they have value to bring to the table and they could use a little extra income and they could use, um, you know, they could use some time that, that does it in front of Netflix. <laughs> right. <laughs> Send those good vibes and ripples out there into the world and you never know how those ripples come back. No, you don't. It's funny. I think about sales and where you're at today. And I'm going to ask you how you got to where you're at today. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens this comes off of a conversation my husband and I had with our 16-year-old son over the weekend. He's building, he's trying to build his own business. He wants to do car detailing. And I think, you know, his initial thought was, oh, this will be simple. Start a business. Well, when you have a dad who runs (laughs) and started his own business, then it becomes, no, we need to do this, this, this. All great learning skills. Mm -hmm. But as we were, my husband was giving him some advice over the weekend. Well, why don't you start calling these people? Or why don't you start getting feedback? And he's like, oh that you know i don't want to do that that's weird he's like that's sales right so when i think about sales my lead up the reason for that story is sales is i think for the right person it's amazing Mm -hmm. it can also if you don't understand it or if it's not your comfort zone scary be very stressful foreboding you know ominous yep yep (laughs) so how how did you get started in sales? Is it something that you knew at an early age? This is what I want to do. I'm really good at it. Mm-hmm. How did it, how did Christy get to where Christy's at today? And how early did that epiphany happen or start? Uh, the epiphany didn't happen until much later. The sales part happened a lot earlier. I just didn't connect the two. Um, I grew up in a sales household. So my parents owned a real estate company. My dad was the owner broker. My mom was one of the top real estate agents in the city. Um, but she spent 13 years teaching prior to that English and Spanish. So um, we never, and my dad had been a middle manager for the United Telephone Company until going into the real estate business with his brother. So we hadn't really been a sales family up to that point. Um, but once my parents bought that, I say I got my MBA at the kitchen table because it became all we talked about. <laughs> um, is, despite the fact my parents worked in the same building, they never actually saw each other during the day apparently. And so dinner time was when they would debrief. Um, and, and so we talked about, I mean, we knew who the out-of-town buyers were, what they were looking for, 
Um, I knew every commission check my mother made. I knew when my dad was and wasn't taking a salary to make payroll for his employees. Um, we were very, my, I've always been very transparent about finances in our family. Um, my brother, I have a younger brother. We got our, I say again, we both got our MBA at the kitchen table, but financial literacy was something that we were taught at a very early age. Um, and so there were really no secrets at our house. And, and so um, I make some people uncomfortable because I'm very comfortable talking about money, very talk, comfortable talking about what I charge and what I make. Um, and what other people make, um, and that makes people uncomfortable. But my my thought is, if everybody was willing to share, we'd all be making more money now, wouldn't we? Um, and I think particularly this is hard for women. And so growing up in a family where my mother out-earned my father a large percentage of the time that they were running the real estate business um, for a variety of reasons. And my dad jokingly says sometimes, I remember seeing a paycheck one time that he got and it said 0.00. And I was like horrified. I was like, this is going to affect my wardrobe income, um, you know, my, my entertainment income. Like, what's going on here? And he goes, oh, my paycheck went to pay your mother's taxes. And I was like, what? Like, I didn't even, I didn't understand this quarterly tax thing either. Um, and so I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, your mom makes a lot of money and the government's going to take a large percentage of that. I was like, well, that sounds awful. Um, but, you know, like we just, like all of this was sort of organic. Um, my first job was waiting tables. And I still say today it was my favorite sales job because you got instant feedback. Um, you know, you would go, you know, you would... The, client would leave or the customer would leave and then you go back to the table and whatever your tip was, that was instant feedback, right? That was, no, sometimes it wasn't always fair feedback, right. um, but it was instant feedback. Uh, and I would and I would say like, I would come home, I would you know take my apron and bring it home and then I would dump everything on the family room table. My dad would normally be watching TV when I got home. We would count up the day's haul um, and we would grade how, how it went um, and keep track of that. And we used Excel spreadsheet to keep track of all that. Uh, and I really like, I didn't realize at the time that you know, I, again, I got to use, you know, I'm an extrovert, got to use my personality. You know, I love joking with people and, and playing around with people. Um, again, smart, I'm athletic, so I move pretty quickly. You know, they, they, balancing a tray apparently is not for everyone. Right. Cause I, I recommend that every teenager wait tables and they're like, yeah, I'm not coordinated enough for that. I'm like, hostess then, host or hostess. That, that would be, that would be for you. So, but I mean, you know, and I'm, you know, I said like, well, my friends were working, you know, eight hours a day during the summertime. I was working split shifts and spending my three or four hours in between at the pool. So I said I got to work on my tan lines as well as make more money than my friends were making. Um, and that's when I, I didn't really put it together about um, the ability to control your own income. So I now say um, that there are jobs with a set income and jobs where you set your income and it's a choice. Um, and back then I didn't really make the connection that I was setting my own income by waiting tables, but even within a, you know, even within a nice restaurant, not everybody was making the same amount of money. And so you, you know, the ter the, the, I said the territory you got the you know, the section you were, you were put in, were you doing lunches or dinners? Did they serve alcohol or not? So, you know, I, I say, I said over time between high school and college, I worked my way up the restaurant food chain and, you know, I started out working in an ice cream parlor that had, you know, sandwiches and salads for lunch and dinner, no alcohol. Then I moved to a restaurant that served alcohol. Then I say I got my big break one night when one of the cocktail waitresses in the basement didn't show up in the sports bar that was in the basement. And I mean, I wasn't even, I mean, I grew up in Kansas. So, you know, this was three, two beer. This was no alcohol, you know, on Sundays, not even in the grocery store. So um, the manager pulls me aside and he's like, I need a cocktail waitress in the basement. I was like, is that, can I? He's like, I just need a cocktail waitress in the basement. I was like, I I'm in. I thought, well, this is great. Like, I love sports. This is gonna combine all, all the things that I love, like making money, you know, testosterone filled den, you know, and all the sports that I could ingest when I wasn't running beer, draft beer around the around the room. But um, that that uh, 
haul that night and the apron was really heavy when I left that night. And that's when I figured out that there are also different types of sales jobs, right? I mean, even within waitressing, you know, the difference between what I was making at Swinson's and what I was making at the regular restaurant up top with the with the wine and the beer and cocktails, and then what I was be, being able to pull in in the basement, um, big difference. And so that's when I really started to understand a couple of things that I liked instant gratification and feedback. <laughs> like, <laughs> I liked my money, cold hard, I like my cold hard cash right there. Uh, Cause I think I was making $2 and one cent mm-hmm. was my hourly rate uh, waiting tables. Uh, and then really like that, that really the job you choose matters. Like you can work a lot of different places, even you can have a lot, you can work a lot of different sales jobs. They don't all pay the same. They don't all, you know, they don't all have the promotion track that you might want. Um, they don't all have the job satisfaction that you want. So that you do the cocktail waitressing. What'd you do after? Is it this yeah, is that what I'm doing from done. now on? Oh. Yeah, that was a one and done. Yeah, uh, legally, legally, I was not supposed to be in the basement. So ah. <laughs> even upstairs, I had to have somebody bring alcohol to the table for me. Okay. Um, I could order it, but I couldn't deliver it at the age that I was at. Uh, yeah, we had very strict, very strict uh, liquor laws in, in Kansas. So no, that was a one and done. But but it did. I was I mean, but it was the most fun I'd ever had waiting tables. And I had and I really enjoyed myself waiting tables in general. But but down there and it wasn't for the faint of heart. Um, you know, lots of screaming, lots of uh, jumping up. You got to be careful with your full tray of beer that you don't end up in somebody's lap. Right. Be able to dodge. <laughs> yeah, you got to be able to yeah, bob and weave. Bob and weave. That's great. <laughs> But I think it's it's uh, an interesting metaphor or explanation. I waited tables, started out at Steak and Shake when I was too young to yep. to deliver alcohol. And then once I got old enough, you know, in an Applebee's and you can, I think when you talked about finding what you want to do and that lane, there's different lanes in that, like any profession, you can work at a higher end restaurant where, you know, maybe the pressures could be a little bit higher, but you've got alcohol, higher food, mm-hmm. you may have fewer, anyway. There's a lot of different options and knowing, probably a lot of that is knowing yourself and which is really hard to do. I don't think I've really learned myself until 40 something. Yeah, you don't, yeah, it doesn't always happen in your teens or 20s, that's for sure. But no, I think um, I've just written a book called Selling Your Way In. And the first section of that book, there are three sections. The first section is just that, is I think a lot of reason why sales reps struggle to get to the top 10%, as I call it, or be a top performer, is they don't know themselves well enough or the sales industry well enough to pick the right job for them. So like I said, there's you know there's 100% commission jobs, there's inside, jo- inside sales jobs, outside sales jobs. There are jobs where you keep what you catch, as I call it. So book a business job, such as what you're doing, right? So once you have a client, the goal would be to keep them for the life of that client um, and then generations to come, I assume as well. Um, and there's some jobs where we have hunters where you're just okay, starting at zero every month, I call it, and um, someone else is going to raise the baby for you once you give birth mm-hmm. to it. So, but I think a lot of, I see a lot of people struggle and, and potentially even lose their jobs because they haven't figured out how to take their skill set and match it to the right job so that they can become a top 10 percenter. And I know you've talked about there's different definitions for those types of some of the things you've said, mm-hmm. uh, do they want to go? F- and I, I know the terms, but I'm gonna let you yeah. drop the bomb. Yeah. Uh, do you want to get them? Do you want to take care of them forever? Yeah. Yep. Um, do you want to do a little bit of both? And can you explain those different types of 
Yeah, salespeople. Yeah, I mean, they're so hunters are the most in demand because they're the smallest kind of percentage of people. So those are people that want to go out, find the client for the very first time, bring them in, and then I call it wipe their hands of them and hand them off to somebody else to raise. Um, and so that's a you know that's a high prospecting. So there's a lot of cold calling, there's a lot of cold emailing, there's a lot of going to conferences. Um, I say starting at zero, right? And that's harder. Um, and there's a, a, a at that point, sales in general is a high rejection sport, as I call it. But there, the highest amount of rejection comes in that area, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's not for everyone. It's a very small percentage of people who are willing to do that job and are good at doing that job. Um, ironically, women make pretty good hunters. There's a lot more women in the farmer category, which we'll talk mm-hmm. about. But um, women, uh, for whatever reason, psychologically, there's a trust that there's trust is built more quickly. Um, there are they're more relationship oriented, and so they're going to be more naturally curious and dig a little deeper. Men tend to move a little more, want to move a little more quickly through the process, and maybe aren't um, as intentional about their questioning or don't dig as deeply. So again, very small percentage of people, and we're working really hard. And I say we, I'm part of a na- nationwide group of female sales consultants called Women Sales Pros, and we are working to get more women into the hunter position and in, into sales leadership. Um, it's been a predominantly white male sport. Um, and so we're trying to add women to that. But, you know, for a variety of reasons, one, just potentially it is like it's a very high, it's the highest stress job in sales is being a hunter. Um, you normally have, again, in general, in the world I live in, in the SaaS software world, million dollar, million and a half quota a year. Um, it's, it's not, it's a, you know, it's a daunting number. But there's a lot of money to be made. Um, and it's normally a 50 50 base salary to variable compensation or commission, as we call it. So, you're again back to their jobs where you can control your own income this is absolutely one of those but you have to you have to be comfortable with only 50 percent of your income being guaranteed the other percent you know basically on you right to to bring that in but also on the company and the job that you pick in order to have the support that you need from your from your boss from your marketing department you know and making sure that you're picking the right position um within hunters there's all kinds right there's outside sales reps 100 percent commission reps you can be an inside sales rep making your money over the phone and over zoom these days um and then the other kind of group is farmers so they will raise the baby after you've given birth <laughs> so they're not going to hunt for anything they'll have a book of business as we call it this is the world that you live in so you're growing your book of business all the time but they are can potentially be responsible for upselling cross-selling or renewing uh, contract business. So there is a there's an element of sales in there, but I always say like when you call a client as you're a, as a farmer, the phone almost always gets picked up. You know, there's only a 4% connect rate when you're a hunter. So one or you know, 4 in 100 people will answer the phone when you make a cold call. If you're a farmer, if you're an account manager or a customer success rep as we would call them, then chances are probably 80 plus percent of the time if they're at their desk or they're near their cell phone and they see your number come in and your name, they'll answer that because it's a relationship situation and it's a it's a symbiotic relationship. They need you, you need them. Um, and then the other one is what we call the gatherer um, who hunts and I call keep what you catch. So they, they fish, but then they get to keep the fish, clean them and eat them. So the gatherer does both sides of that, of that equation. That's a, that's a really hard position. I don't actually believe in gatherers. I don't believe that personality wise, there are very specific traits for hunters and very specific traits for farmers. It would be very unusual to find a gatherer who was good at both, enjoyed both. Um, normally they're going to lean one way or the other. Um, it's kind of a, the same thing as I also don't believe in leaders being what I'll call player coaches. So c- having a quota and managing a team, 
um, first of all, it's extremely hard to comp those people because they'll lean in at the end of the month wherever they're going to get their most <laughs> right. money, right? Um, I wrote a blog post one time uh, and I called it, if player coach was such a great idea, why isn't the NFL doing it? So uh, a lot of startup founders, though, see that as their very first hire. They like to hire the VP of sales or director of sales. And I was like, A, titles are cheap and business cards are cheaper. So like whatever you want to call them is fine. But they shouldn't be doing both, right? Either You really need to bring in the first people that normally get brought in are, are hunters, right? We need people to go out and find new companies to be brought in. Um, but I think... You know, back to the knowing yourself piece, um, you know, waiting tables was perfect for me. Again, it wasn't really an intentional. I just liked money. And I knew that I could make a lot more money doing that than babysitting or some other things. And so, um, you know, and I, and I didn't really think about controlling my own income. But as I started to figure out, like, I'm done with the ice cream parlor, like, that was great, like 16 year old money. But now I'm in college and I don't need 16 year old money. I need, you know, 18. Now I have beer to buy as opposed to, you know, just needing clothes. Right. Um, and so working my way up and I don't think I made the connection there. But then I got, the, you know, the big break is my cocktail waitress night. And I was like, OK, there's a lot of money to be made in the basement. Um, unfortunately, that didn't fit my demographic at the time. But but that really I was like. And I think now, like, again, to your point about being self-aware in your teens and 20s, not maybe so much, but I go, I take a lot of people through the first section of the book and ask them a lot of questions, right? Like, when do people naturally come to you and ask advice about, right? If you don't really know what your secret weapon is or your swim lane is, if you just think about what is it that people reach out to you and ask questions about, what is it that you enjoy doing? What is it that you seem to have like an easier time doing? I mean, even if you just thought back to school, it was very apparent to me that math and science was not going to be my thing, <laughs> that social studies and English was totally going to be my thing. And I ended up getting my journalism degree. And then I say never using it, but I but my writing skills are superior to most. So I'd use it every day. Um, and that was probably one of the best majors I could have gotten as a result of what I do today and the amount of documentation and writing that I do do today. Um, but like, I knew myself and then ironically, I spent eight years, we haven't talked about this yet, but my first eight years out of college, I spent in retail um, and actually moved to St. Louis and got here as a result of being a buyer for Famous Bar, being um, being hired and relocated here to St. Louis. So that was an eight years of my life, but that also honed my, it did own my analytical math skills because really retail is not, I said, I'm not setting fashion trends. Nobody invited me to Paris. Um, <laughs> yeah, there were no, there were no shows in Paris for me. Um, it was all about assortment. It was all about math. It was all about making sure that the stores didn't run out of white t-shirts or red t-shirts or the hottest denim jean. Um, and so I spent a lot of time really in, with spreadsheets trying to make sure that I had the right sizes in the right stores at the right time so that I didn't have to take markdowns and 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 spend because anytime I had to if I had a pool of let's say a million dollars to spend over the year every time I had a markdown that actually that dinged me that came out of my buying budget that came out of my checkbook and so you know it was more important to make sure that you didn't run out or to see a trend and um, we got we got um, trend reports every Monday and I you know an assistant buyer so the first thing the assistant buyer spent the entire four hours of their first morning on Monday mm -hmm. figuring out what had sold in the last week what do we need and then letting the buyer know so that we can go and ask for reorders, you know, making deals. So that really honed a different side. I really had would probably not have had the negotiation skills that I have today if I hadn't done that job first. But I thought it was ironic. I got my journalism degree. And then the only two companies that wanted to hire me were the Jones Store Company out of Kansas City and Kmart. Um, and I was like, how did this happen? How did this happen? Um, and again, I think part of it was work ethic. You know, I had I had clearly shown work ethic because, again, as you've already pointed out, waiting tables, not also for the faint of heart. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you have to be. Uh, yeah, that's again, the 
the not the hours were great. They were short shifts, but you worked really hard during those short shifts. And it was when a game was on, game was on. There was no, you know, smoke break. You know, there's the people who were sm- the waiters and the waitresses I worked with that were smokers. It was really hard. Those three hours that you never got to step out yeah. back to smoke. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was no downtime, right? You're you were going from the word from the you know from the jump, and and I think that work ethic you know did me right. But I really I did not like corporate America. Um, I got disenchanted with it pretty quickly, and I you know I. I um, bought for some higher brands, higher end brands within um, what's now Macy's. It was famous bar, but what's now mm-hmm. Macy's. And I got kind of got tired of being in New York. And we went, you know, 10 times a year, um, once a month. And I'm sitting in rooms with even sometimes my president, you know, the president, my general merchandise manager, my divisional merchandise manager, myself, some in a lot of cases, I bought like Liz Claiborne and Charles and, and Tommy Hilfiger. So the Missy buyer, the petite buyer, the the women's buyer, all in the room. And I just sort of felt like a secretary for a while, like taking notes and wasn't really making decisions. Um, and it was pretty political. Uh, you know, it, it, I think I think I really liked about it is I saw a lot of female mentors and females in that. There's a lot of females in that space. Um, my very first store manager, Miss Fitzgerald, was, was a, a five-inch heel-wearing, uh, chain-smoking, potty mouth uh, store manager. <laughs> and she was probably the best thing I could have ever had coming out of college. I mean, she was just intimidating and like all get out. And But I mean, she was a force to be reckoned with when she was on the floor, as we would call it, not in her office. You knew. Like you could hear her coming a mile away, you know, with her five inch heels on. She was close to six foot tall or, or taller um, and, you know, short black hair. And she was a presence. And, you know, I think that was a really great place for me to start because there were a lot of women. And I worked for a lot of women as, as um, in the divisional merchandise manager. My general managers were all white men, um, but I got an opportunity to work with a lot of women, a lot of, you know, a lot of really strong women, really smart women. Um, And even going to New York, a lot of the women, a lot of the uh, vendors were female, you know, have female led or had a lot of females in them that we were negotiating with. So I I think I had a different uh, kind of even upbringing with my mother out earning my father from time to time. You know, waiting tables was predominantly a female um, industry. And then going into retail, a lot of women in retail as well. So and a lot of really great role models. So I think I grew up differently than other people and had opportunities to see different things based on just, again, don't know that that was conscious decisions I was making, but I, but I, one way or the other, put myself in position to interact with a lot of very smart and strong women. And I think, you know, we're in 2023. It's more normal mm-hmm. to see women in more places getting to be more normal where maybe the wife out earns the mm-hmm. husband but if we're talking i mean even as as long as 10 15 years ago mm-hmm. still not Mm-mm. very normal or to see that mentor so what what do you think it was about miss fitzgerald or did she is there like a certain story you remember where you were like wow this lady has it i you know i want to be like her what it, i think it was just her story um she never got a college degree. She started, I mean, she worked her way up. And I think there were eight stores at the time. So seven in Kansas City and the one in Topeka that I was working in. And she was the only woman sales manager, store manager um, in the Jones Store Company. And one of very few women within the Mercantile Group. So the Mercantile family was privately owned, had stores in other parts of the country. Um, and so she, you know, she started out as a sales associate. She worked her way up. She didn't have a college degree. She, you know, she learned everything like on the job training, I called it. Um, and, you know, it was always intimidating. The, you know, the mercantile family would come and visit X number of times a year. Um, and that was an all hands on deck, like, you know, 
24 hours in the store cleaning and buffing and doing and folding and fluffing and all of those things. But she never seemed ruffled. Um, and, and I thought, you know, you're in a room. We had a we had a secret locked room. Every store did that was part of the mercantile group where we kept um, where we kept all of the numbers on the big board, if you will, like a big wipe off board. And all the numbers were there. But it was a it was a locked room. Um, and we held our executive meetings in there. Um, every store did. But when the executives came, um, you know, like we spent all of our time mostly talking to them in that room. And then in corporate headquarters, they also had a locked room that had all of the numbers on it, but also had every single manager in the company ranked in a pyramid. Um, and so when I went to the, when I went to corporate, we did, we got to go to corporate twice a year to do um, training and they would take you into the secret room. They wouldn't show you everything. They wouldn't show you where you're ranked or things like that, but you knew you were being ranked. And so I thought like, you know, like how, how confident she had to be to be in a situation like that. And, you know, honestly, she never left the Topeka store. She never got promoted to a Kansas City store. And I don't think she really wanted to, in fairness. I think she she built her life in Topeka and she really liked that. Um, but she was she was tough as nails, but she was also very compassionate. Um, I, you know, I always felt like I could walk, like she was intimidating, but not um, not unapproachable. So you, I guess the intimidating part really came from just the respect that you would have for her. So there was a high amount of respect, but her door was always open and you were always welcome. And she was, you know, I, you know, she, she pushed you to be better. Like she made you better. And I think from that point forward, I always looked for people to work for that I thought would make me better. Um, ironically, my first, uh, this is my sad, this is my sad St. Louis story because I, I, when I was interviewed in Kansas city for a position in St. Louis, um, for those of you who are local, like I actually, the first job I had before going to the buying office was they wanted me to help close down and reopen the West County store and the Chesterfield store. So if you're old enough and you've been here long enough, you know that, that the, I called it the spaceship at West County, we shut that store down. And then the store that, you know, today we, I was part of building that store out and we did the same thing at the Chesterfield store, tore down the old store and rebuilt the new one. Um, and I took the job because I'd interviewed with a woman named Pam who was running the West County store and she was the store manager. And I was like, this is awesome. Like another really strong, smart female. So excited uh, to work for her. And this is a big deal for me. Like I was leaving my, you know, I'd grown up in Topeka for the most part. And I was leaving behind uh, my boyfriend at the time who we were living together, my family, all of the things that I knew and moving to a city where I didn't really know anybody for the most part um, with just a job that I felt confident and I felt like this was my next good step change as I call it in my career path. And I show up on day one, like pumped up and so excited. And I show up to the employee entrance door and there's a big poster on it that says, welcome store manager, Greg Condon. And I was like, oh my God, what have I done? Like. I, I didn't know this man. I had not met him and I wanted to work for Pam. Pam had been promoted to the Belleville store. And now here I am and I like I had, I took a job for a person. And I did it one other time in my career and I'll tell you that story if we get to that point, but I'm very careful about telling people like got to be careful about taking a job because of a person because I thought she was totally going to make me better. Um and sh and she would have made me better. I like she was still very well thought of within um, within famous bar and store managers and she did have a great career with the store but she didn't make me better she didn't get a chance to make me better and so and that was just like a huge disappointment I mean I remember like 
I was I had a little apartment in Baldwin behind the Elko car dealership. And I remember coming home like two or three weeks in and just sitting on the floor and sobbing. First off, I had ordered that Emo's pizza that everybody was raving about and thought I'd gotten ripped off. I was like, what is this? I literally called the company. I called the store. I was like, I think I got the wrong pizza. I'm like, this is awful. And I didn't understand the Provel thing. I didn't understand. I, I said, you sent me a tortilla with, a, with this shitty cheese on it. I don't know what is going on here. But I sat, in, I sat on the floor and just cried. I was like, what have I done? Like, I thought I'd made a huge mistake. Um, because I had, like, I was just, I had all these dreams that she was going to like, it was going to take me under my, you know, it was going to, she was going to take me under her wing and make me this awesome, like female executive. And then I got the white man. <laughs> How did that end up? How long were you there? Um, it, it, it didn't end up well for Greg. He didn't stay very long. Um, and so I was actually, it, it looked actually, it worked out better than I thought it had worked out only because, um, there was a core group of us that had been literally pulled together. I, I was part of a kind of an exclusive group. They had taken the best of the best department managers from all over the city, pulled them together to shut down and reopen West County. And then they were like, now you can go to the buying office. I was like, great, here we go. And I remember I was on vacation at my when my when with my family at my uncle's place in Arizona when the regional manager, Marty, um, reached out to me and asked if he could have a phone call. And I was like, sure. And my uncle's like, that's pretty cool. Like the regional manager is calling you on vacation. It must be really important. And I was like, yeah, or like, or that kid. I was like, I don't know that I'm feeling as good about it as you are. Um, and it turns out he says, hey, listen, like, we're going to take a core group of you who opened the West County store, and we'd like you to do it again at the Chesterfield store. And I mean, these were really, really hard long days. The only plus of doing this job was you got to do it in jeans. And because back then we were still wearing nylons and heels to work <laughs> in the store. And so you got to wear your tennis shoes and your jeans. That was the only benefit, as far as I could tell, because these were awfully long days. And I was like, and he's like, you know, and I was like, oh, I was really like, like I literally had moved to St. Louis because I wanted to be in the buying office. I wasn't getting that chance in the Jones store company. And he goes, well, I do have an assistant buying position open. And I was like, okay. And he's like, it's in the silverware department, like silverware plates. And I was like, okay, that was the no, that was like the no promotion promotion. I was like, okay. So I said, fine, one more time, but not anymore, one more time. So we, about 80% of us who'd done the West County did the Chesterfield store and, and we were a tight group at that point because you you live through something like that like it becomes becomes family so I did it one more time and then I got to go down and then I got they let me buy juniors so I was like that's great swimsuit and denim and dresses I was like this is perfect but but yeah it was a really um it was a really interesting experience and although I was devastated and I felt very lonely and in a city I was like I just was like what have I done I've left everybody who loves me and that I know back you know back in Kansas but, you know, A, I'd never lived alone and I needed to do that, right? I needed to be out on my own. I needed to live alone. I hadn't done that yet. Um, and I needed to, you know, I needed to see a different experience and live in a different city and, and meet different people. So although I didn't ultimately choose that as my profession, I, I gained a lot of skills. I mean, working with the public, there was just a lot of, there was just a lot of pluses to, to growing up in the retail world. And it sounds like by kind of, I don't know, just taking one for the team and helping open that chesterfield store it allowed you to then if you had been stuck in the silverware yeah i would not allowed have been happy you to in, i would not have been happy that, in right, hardware right no no yeah no and i got again i wanted i got into the ready to wear area i loved juniors was so fast i mean trends come and go right so like that's why i said like every monday that assistant buyer was really digging through things and and trying to rebuy you know swim again the swimsuit season's only so long anyway and when you almost sell out of something in the first week or two like you got to find you got to find more of that and you got to find it quickly and most of that's coming from china so i call it the slow boat from china it takes a while to get here um so yeah you got like 
it was the pace I needed. I think that was one of the other things I learned about retail, especially in the junior department. The pace was was frenzied. And that's what I love about the startup world, right? There's a sense of urgency. Those VCs want their money back. You're working with really smart people, but the pace is frenzied. And it works, that fits my personality. Back to choosing jobs that, that fit fit you and fit your personality. Do you have a story from those buying days where you felt like you saw the trend, you really knocked it out of the park, or was there a time when, ooh, we missed that, or a both. story for each, yeah. <laughs> or both? Yeah, I remember. Um, I remember a denim short summer when uh, mud, M U D D, mud jeans and shorts were all the rage. And I said, Marty from Mud, because Marty, I like when I would go to Marty's showroom. Marty would be there with his putter and his he has little fake green, and he would be working on his uh, on his putts. In the like as we're negotiating, he's not he's not really lifting his head. He's still working on his putter, whatever. And so yeah, I remember like literally coming in on a Monday, and my sister Meyer's like, oh my gosh, like we are almost out of you know seven three six denim shorts. And I was like, that's not possible. Like I bought a lot of those. They're like, yeah, we're almost out. So I got on the phone like right away. I was like, Marty. Like, Marty, I got to have more denim. Got him. He goes, Christy, I don't know. You know, slow bump from China. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, come on, Marty. You know, and, and I mean, like, I just kept I kept haggling with him. And finally, he's like, everybody needs the everybody needs the shore. What am I going to do? And I'm like, you're going to put me at the top of the list. Like, what is it going to take? You know, and everything. And I mean, you know, it was all about money. Right. So even in this business, you know, if you were paying, let's say, eight dollars and 72 cents for the short and reselling it at twenty nine ninety nine. You know, I would, if I'm willing to pay $9.25 for the short and somebody else is not willing to pay that, I can go to the top of the list. So, you know, really honed my negotiation skills. I have the same stories about Marty in reverse, right? Calling Marty after the jeans sell in the wintertime and he's like, it's like that, that, he goes, that, you know, that lot, that denim lot is gone. He's like, there is just this no more to make denim jeans out of. And, you know, so that you had to react very quickly. Um, and it is hard. Sometimes it's hard to walk into a showroom. You think what looks good in the showroom is going to play. And then it plays differently across the country as well. Um, and even, you know, even we had, you know, Carbondale, we had a store. We had, you know, stores on, you know, in East St. Louis. We had stores in St., you know, in Metro St. Louis. So you had to really know your demographic um, because certain things are going to play differently in different stores, even different colors are going to play differently, different styles are going to di play differently. Um, and so really understanding that made a big difference too. But yeah, sometimes what looked, I can't tell you how many times I walked into the showroom, I'm like, that is totally a bestseller. And then I'm marking that thing down like eight weeks later, I was like, oh my gosh, this was awful. <laughs> it was just awful. And some things just didn't fit right, right? Sometimes they looked great. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the fabric was, I mean, everything about it was right, except the fit. And you can't fix fit. Especially probably in teens. Uh, yeah. No, it had to fit just right, <laughs> right. for the teenagers. Yes, it did. It's hard enough being uh, an older woman and figuring that out. But uh, that teen transition years. Yes, if they don't, yeah, if they don't like it, they won't wear it. Right, right. And it doesn't matter. You know, it's not like their mom who can go at, at two or four, buy them and they'll wear whatever. Yeah. Uh, they'll wear pajamas to the grocery store. They will. They don't care. It's their favorite Buzz Lightyear pajamas <laughs> or princess pajamas. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so they get to that certain age and mom may think it looks cool and bought it. But if they don't. Some things are just not worth the fight. Right, right. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so thinking about getting out of kind of retail, mm -hmm. what was the next phase for you? Or, or was it still in retail, but a different kind of, I don't know, industry? Yeah, no, I got out big time. Um, I I made the decision. Um, I just, things were, there were some things going on that were, that would border on the unethical. And so I knew it was time to go. 
um, and and Famous Bar soon became Macy's at that. But there were some financial things going on, and there were some things that were happening that I knew were not above board. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I knew it was time to go. So I think the other thing that I really do stress in the book is you know you have to know your own value system and in where that lies for you. And you don't you don't have to compromise that. You shouldn't compromise that. And you don't have to compromise that. There are jobs out there where you don't have to compromise. You know your character, your integrity, or your value system. And and so I decided I made an interesting decision, and I'm not sure where this came from. But I told people this at the time. They kind of looked at me funny, but I said, "I'm not looking for a job. I'm looking for a company." And I think the reason was is because I've been disappointed by the current company. And so um, I went out saying like, "I think I have a lot of skills, and I can help a lot of different." types of companies, but at the company itself and the values of that company were really important to me at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I um, I went and talked to a lot. Again, I didn't grow up in St. Louis. So that was a huge disadvantage, right? I did not go to high school here. So <laughs> like I had, to, I had to rely on those who did. Um, and my husband at the time was a private baseball instructor and he had a lot of clients who owned their own businesses. He was coaching um, uh, kids whose parents owned businesses. And so I, you know, I said to him, I'm like, I need a list of all of the, you know, the clients that you're closest to and what they do and whatever. And so I started to reach out to some of those people and introduce myself. Um, And I ran across a guy who I'd spent some time socially with, he and his wife. Um, They were, my husband was coaching his son. And uh, I, you know, met him for lunch. And back in the day, this was, this was when you had the really nice parchment, your resume on the really nice parchment paper. So I had my, you know, I had my portfolio and I had like my 20 copies of my resume. And, you know, he was, you know, entrenched in the St. Louis golf world. So I told him that I was looking, you know, I said, here are all the skills I have and I'm looking for a smaller company. So I think I went back to my roots. Mm. I think that growing up in a small business with my parents, like I liked that feel, like even growing up, we were, we were office rats, my brother and me. And, you know, we knew all the agents and we knew, you know, my dad's assistant and we knew the marketing person and, and all of those type of things. And so I think I really missed that feel. So I knew I wanted a smaller company. And so I gave my resume to this gentleman, Dean Pache, and gave him all the resumes. I'm like, hand these all, you know, while you're golfing, you know, I'm sure you guys are talking shop. Like, you know, I'm a valuable member of somebody's team in the future. Again, hand out resumes. Um, and so a couple weeks later, I, you know, doubled back and did my follow up and, and I said, so how'd it go? And he's like, we should have lunch again. So you know, we had lunch again. He said, so I'm looking for an HR manager, which I thought was hilarious. I was like, oh, you don't know me well enough yet, clearly, because that is an awful idea. I said, I will either fire everybody or everybody will quit. I said, I, I said that's not really my personality. Like, I don't like the, the crying with Christy in my office because somebody upset you is probably not probably not what you want me to be doing. This is not going to go well for you. I don't even own Kleenex. Um, I was going to ask you, why did you say, no, this would never work? But it sounds like you just Oh, yeah. You got, again, know yourself. Right. Pick the right jobs. And I knew that I was, you know, the, my compassion level was a little lower at that point. I was, I was just 30. Um, and so I was, you know, I was kind of on the be brief, be bright, be gone program. I was like, you know, you know we were working at a feverish pace in retail. And it's just not really not a time to stop and, mm-hmm. you know, give hugs and wipe tears um and so he was like hmm okay so i was like no seriously like you still have those resumes like i need you to give those out at the golf course like this these are the people i want to work for the small business owners that you do golf with and so two or three weeks later he calls again he's like let's have lunch again i was like okay cool i was like great now he's got he's got like connections for me he's gonna put me in touch with people and he's like okay so my partner and i have parted ways and i need somebody who has some business acumen to come in and help me with the business I was like, well, what are you proposing? Because this HR thing is, I already told you no on that. He's like, I don't know, but I think you can help. He's like, I've been hiring a lot of kids out of college and they're, you know, they're in their early to mid twenties and I just need somebody who's got a little more business experience to help. So we talked multiple times over the next two or three weeks and I literally like took a leap of faith. 
I had no job title. I didn't, I, and I did not know them that well. I, we, we had done social things, baseball games and, and dinners with he and his wife. Um, and I, and I thought that, and again, I felt good about the value system there, the quality of the people that I was going to be working for. Um, but I didn't know anything. He was an, it was a, it was, we didn't even call it SAS back then. Software as a solution. It was subscription model. I'm so old that we didn't even call it SAS. <laughs> um, and it was e-learning. And I was like, and he had been in the banking industry, actually. He had a co- call, a company in St. Louis called Bankers Training. And he had sold bank training, compliance training to uh-huh. banks all over the country, had sold that business and made a little bit of money and decided to expand and do e-learning. It was very new on the scene, right? In fact, it was so new that we weren't doing e-learning yet. We were literally shipping VHS tapes across the country. The UPS man came twice a day, came in the morning to drop stuff off and in the afternoon to pick stuff up and you had a membership. So companies would buy training VHS tapes. It was a lending library. So if you bought three, if you had three credits, then you got to have three videos out at a time. Um, and again, like people, like lots of the people and listeners are going to be like, I don't even know what she's talking about. VHS was the Netflix tapes. and the uh, Redbox and all that no, before no, before we, that, you know, where Netflix no. or somewhere you could order DVDs to be sent to your Yeah, but we weren't even doing DVDs. We were right, doing VHS. VHS. Then we got into DVDs, which gave us a lot more space in the office because the DVD library or the VHS yes. library was very bulky. The DVD library, we, we could have a lot of DVDs in a very small space. Um, and then we then we, we flew into e-learning. Um, but I went in there and I remember the first week or two, like I just followed around like a puppy like he just took me to every meeting in in the office out of the office or whatever i did not have i did not have a clue um his wife had been doing the benefits and payroll and about four weeks in she came in with all of these three ring binder manuals and set them on my desk and i was like hey like what's this she's like this is all the information i need to know because i'm gonna have you taken over benefits i was like oh oh my gosh like then i was like i was like I thought we talked about this hr thing that this probably wasn't my thing she's like no no not hr benefits i was like oh god um, and so I spent the next 10 years helping him grow that business from a little under $2 million to almost $10 million. Um, about a year in, I took over most of the sales team. I started by hiring some people and training some people. I had no clue what I was doing. Um, I started a sales manager roundtable group. So one of the, so again, self-awareness is important. I knew I didn't know what I didn't know. And I had to figure out a way to do that. And so I had met a recruiter friend, Steve Ecker here in town. And I called him and I said, I need all of the sales leaders that you work with in small businesses, like businesses under $5 million, like mom and pop shops or privately owned companies in St. Louis. So he gave me a list and I brought these people together. Um, I brought about eight of them together at my office and said, here's my vision. I'm like, we don't probably, you may not have a network of other people like us, but we're doing things for the first time or we're coming across challenges and I wanna meet once a month and I want everybody to bring their problems to the table. I want us to solve them as a group. And I want us to do this regularly, 12 times a year, if not more. And everybody's like, yeah, that sounds great. And so I think I started with a core group of about six or seven, um, most of whom I'm still in contact with today. And we covered everything from first maternity leave. Like somebody showed up and says, I have my first pregnant salesperson. And I was like, oh God, I didn't have that yet. And we're like, what are we going to do? Like, you know, do we, does that person still have a, you know, have a quota while they're off? Mm -hmm. What if they sell, what if something sells while they're not working? Do we pay the commission or not? Like, you know, how long do we give them? Like, not about even outside of legally, like, what if they want three months off? Um, we talked about compensation plans, we did a strategic planning session at the end of every year. And so I built my own circle, my tribe of people just like me, who were running across the problems just like me. Um, and I just wasn't equipped to solve them. So uh, over time, at some point, I took over the entire the entire revenue responsibility. So I had the hunters and the farmers, we didn't have gatherers. 
Um, and so I took over the entire sales team and, and had 100% revenue responsibility. And that was really the best experience. Like I knew I wanted something small. I wanted, I said, I wanted to sit at the Knights of the Round Table, right? I wanted my voice to be heard. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be one of 12 people sitting in Tommy Hilfiger's, you know, showroom in New York, just taking notes while other people negotiated stuff for me. Like I wanted to be on the front line. I kind of grown up that way and saw what that was about. Um, and, and really I said, you know, if the copier jammed, that's, I know copiers, it's hilarious to talk about these things, isn't it? <laughs> the copier jammed, that was me. If we ran out of post-its, that was me. If you weren't sure, you know, what your deduction was or you had benefits questions, that was me. And if you wanted to help close that, you know, first $100,000 deal, that was me too. So I wore a lot of hats, um, kept me busy and I loved every minute of it. And I really, like, I became the sales leader that I am today. Um, I attribute everything back to Dean Pache and his family because they, you know, he gave me a shot. He took it, he, I thought I was taking the risk, but then I figured out later that he'd actually taken a really big risk, that he took a bigger risk on me than I probably took on him. Um, But I think he, I think he had seen what I had done and where I had been. Um, And, you know, again, I think the fact that he really loved my husband helped as well. Um, And so it all worked out. And and even today, I still attribute where I am today. So I wouldn't be running my own business without Dean Pache either. Um, After doing that for 10 years, I went and worked for another company where I got laid off 18 months in. We got acquired. We were, it was a VC, it was my first VC backed Mm -hmm. company. So I got the VC backed bug. But um, we were, it was on the east side. It was a company called Network Solutions. You know them today as web.com. Um, because web.com out of Florida bought them and I was employee number one let go. Um, And it was terrifying. I had never been through this before. And I thought, you know, what am I going to do? And, um, you know, I reached out to my network and and I subsequently got some other jobs. And then I got laid off a second time. I had a company that the department that I was running was under the sales umbrella and they wanted to move it to under the marketing umbrella, which happens from time to time. Except the marketing department was out of Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and so they, my boss, my, the VP of sales came in and told me that they were going to disband my, my department and rebuild it in Phoenix. And that I was going to, if I would stay on for three months, they would give me three months severance. And so that was this, I, I, I knew what to prepare for the second time around. Um, the first time around was, was, a was an emotional roller coaster. The second time around wasn't great because I loved that job and I knew that that company was going to be successful, but I knew how to, I knew how to handle that, that situation, that layoff. So they good to their word. They paid me to stay around for three months as they rebuilt the team. And so most of my employees that we absorbed into the company somewhere, but some of them I had to let go, which was also hard. Um, and so I started to reach out to my network to look for my next VP of sales gig. And I started with Dean Pache because again, grew up in St. Louis, you know, business owner, golfer. I thought, here we go again. Like, here we go. I'm going to need your network again. And ironically, he put me in touch with, um, three, like as a result of him, I started my consultancy business, not intentionally, but the three people that he had, two people he put me in touch with and one that had been a partner of ours when I had worked for him previously, um, all the universe conspired to bring all of this together for me. Um, he introduced me to a husband and wife team who was looking for a VP of sales. He introduced me to a general manager at Cultivation Capital, um, the number one VC in Missouri here mm-hmm. in town, and uh, David Friedman with the with Service Skills, who was a customer service e-learning company here in town. Um, all reached like I he introduced me to these people. I started conversations with them, and then David reached out um, unknowingly that I was in the position that I was in, and we had lunch. And as it turns out, like. He needed help, and I thought, well, I'll come in and help you. For like, He needed some help figuring out some compensation situations. I said, well, I can make this my side hustle. I got some time. But then I told him what was going on, and he was like, interesting. 
And then I was interviewing with the husband and wife team for their VP of sales position. That was going pretty well. When the general manager that I'd had breakfast with that day, John True, reached out to me and he said, hey, we just invested in a cybersecurity company, founder-led sales, and the founder has no idea like where to start to build out the sales team. Would you have coffee? I was like, of course. And my motto is I have 30 minutes for everyone. So I ended up giving him 90 minutes. Um, but he took all these notes. Brian was his name. He took all these notes and he and he was like engaged and asked the right questions. And I was like, you know, I felt important. I was like, you know, somebody's coming to me for advice about how to build out their sales team. Like, this is really cool. And at the end of the thing, he says, this has been amazing. And he's looking all his notes over and he goes, I have no confidence that I can do any of the things that you just said. And I was like, oh, I was like disappointed. I was like, oh, I thought I was like, really specific and right. yeah, like I thought I'd given you really good advice. And he said, who can help me do this? Do you know somebody? And I said, before I even thought about it, I was like, I can help you. And I was still employed during my three month stint of, of transition. And he's like, well, I thought you were employed. I'm like, sort, sort of, you know, and I knew they wanted me to show up every day and they knew that I was gonna be interviewing. So I helped him hire his first two sales reps and then build out some processes. And then he said, you know, then I was like, okay, like, I got you an SDR and I got you an AE and I put the process together and I've got the marketing guy all set up and, and who was already there. And I said, so like, you know, like, it's been great. He's like, where do you think you're going? And I was like, well, like I thought I was going to go get a real job. And he was <laughs> like, and he was like, no, he's like, I need you to stay on. I need you to lead the sales team. And I was like, oh, fractional sales leadership was something I didn't even really know existed. And I was like, well, how does this work? And he's like, well, can you give me 10 hours a week? And I'm like, yeah, I think so. And so I was helping David out too, doing some training with his team. And I told him my exciting news and he's like, perfect. He's like, this is what you should be doing. He's like, I'll take you fractionally too. And I was like, oh, okay. And he goes, in fact, he goes, I want at least 10 hours a week, but as you're building your business out, I will pay you and up to, and I will take up to 30 hours a week. I was like, oh, I was like, you're going to be my business sugar daddy. <laughs> and he was, that's what I call it. I was like, you're my business sugar daddy. I'm like, this is awesome. And then uh, I went back to the husband and wife team because I was like, okay, so the universe, I'd always said to people, anybody who would talk, I'd, I'd watch a lot of hard things happen with my family. You know, my dad had, had bypass surgery at 53 and I thought despite the two pack a day smoking, the stress of the job I thought was contributing factor to that situation. We'd had an office fire. We'd had half of our real estate office leave and open up a competing office, a Remax office. We were with Goldwell Banker. Century 21 at the time. And um, I just seen a lot of, and like in my dad's secretary had stolen from us. So it seemed like a really, I had seen the good and the bad of owning your own business. I'd seen the, you know, the income situation when real estate's good, everybody's happy. When real estate's bad, ain't nobody happy. But we'd had a lot of other weird things happen that I, so I'd always said to anybody who would listen, like, yeah, I'm never going to own my own business. Like I'd watched it kind of like, you know, like destroy my dad's health and, and add, you know, take some years away from his life. But I thought, there's something definitely going on here that I probably shouldn't ignore. It feels like the universe is definitely speaking to me. Um, and everything had been connected back to Dean, who had taken the first chance on me when I'd left mm -hmm. retail to begin with. So I thought everything seemed like it was happening the way it should happen. So I went back to the husband and wife team and said, hey, listen, like, I think I'm going to do this. And I think you should be a client. Like, I, you have two account executives and one SDR. And I don't think you need a full-time VP of sales. And you're probably not going to want to pay me what I want to be paid. You should hire me as a fractional sales leader, too. And they were like, no, no, thanks. Um, not going to do that. And I said, okay. So parted ways as friends. And then a week later, the husband called and said, hey, like, so we've been working with a consultant locally. And I was like, oh, they hadn't disclosed this previously. And I was like, okay. And he goes, would you have, you know, breakfast or lunch with this individual? And I was like, well, sure. Who's your consultant? 
And they were like, Mike Weinberg. And I was like, the Mike Weinberg? And they're like, yeah. And I go, the guy who's written the books. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, huh. So I kind of thought they were small potatoes for him. I was like, wow, you like, you're like working with one of the like most successful like sales consultants in the country. Like this is pretty impressive. So I met Mike for breakfast and we had like, he said, you know, we were, he said you were siblings from another mother. Um, we were, you know, we believed in still picking up the phone to make sales calls that we couldn't sell anything over email. Like we had a lot of similar philosophical thoughts around sales. Um, and at the end of the breakfast, he's like, okay, he's like, this is totally what should be happening. Like, I'm going to make this happen. And I said, no, I go, I don't think, you know, he doesn't seem like he really wants a fractional sales leader. He goes, yeah, leave it up to me. I'll take care of it. And two days later, they called and said, why don't you come in and let's work out the details. So he did. And then Mike mentored me for the first year um, and gave me his contracts, you know, told me how to charge, you know, pumped me up, gave me confidence to charge more than I was ever going to be charging. Um, I'm like, I go, I'm just new at this. I'm not like you. Like, I haven't been doing this forever. And he goes, you've been a sales leader for 16 years. Like, you've just not been doing consultancy for 16 years. Um, so all of that came together. And again, if, you know, Dean introduced me to people that really changed my life. But going back to like, I still credit him. I took him a really nice bottle of wine and said, thank you so much, because really it was his connections and and really his confidence in me, you know, back back in 2000 when I left retail. And like I said, at the time, I thought I was taking the risk, but now I know that he was taking the risk. Um, so yeah, so everything, you know, everything I say, like, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is when the universe speaks, listen. And I think you have to be open to that. Um, your husband and I have some similar, some yes. similar outside interests, if you will, where we do believe in, and in, in you know, opening ourselves up to to new experiences and making sure that um, that you can hear when people are talking or when things are happening, and and that self awareness and just um, you know being open to, to seeing things. I, I really, I had really had told anybody who had asked that I would never own my own business. But I had to admit that like something weird was happening. And when David said like, you know, I'll fund you basically, I'll support you financially until you get up off the ground, which by the way, he actually didn't have to support me for that long. Um, because, you know, within, before I ever left that company, my three month stint, I had enough clients to support myself and clients came and went. And I, you know, and he helped out the first year financially by me working more hours for him when I when I had some downtime. Um, but yeah, and I, and I really attribute this. I tell people I said, I want to be clear about when I tell my when I tell my story, a lot of people are like, because a lot of people who start their own business don't have the story that I have. And they have there was no hustle struggle for me. Mm -hmm. But I say to people, I go, but I'm not lucky. I did the right things by people all along and then the right things happened to me. So I said, I always had 30 minutes for everybody. You know, I, I took the phone call that other people wouldn't take. I took the phone call from strangers when somebody referred, you know, when a friend said, could you talk to my friend who thinks they want to go into sales or can you, you know, even I said, even my girlfriends would send me their dear John uh, breakup email or breakup text messages and to review and condense down because, you know, before four pages of breakup email, I'm like, they're not, that's a guy. They're not going to read. They're never going to get past the first page. We're going to put it all into one, one page. Um, and so I do believe like, I do believe in that, right? I believe that what, you know, what you put out into the universe and what you give will come back to you. And in my case, I think it came back tenfold. Um, and I still feel like I lead a blessed life today. And, but I'm continuing, I continue to find 30 minutes for people. You know, I keep saying to people, maybe I'll be busy enough one day. I only have 15 minutes for you, but unfortunately still, I write, I have further 30 minutes for you. Well, and it's like your hustle started 15, 20 years before that opportunity presented itself. That's right. Like we talked earlier, you did the St. Louis store and you said, fine, okay, the Chesterfield store. Well, that was a hustle. Yep. That was, again, your network, doing the right things, building yep. your name and your what you stand for. So there was hustle, just maybe not 
what uh, the normal definition of hustle is. Oh, I started this job here. I started the hustle and how long, well, you started it, you know, two, that's three right. jobs ago. No, that's a good point. Your no, point. you're right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. I mean, when, when people ask for things, I was likely to say yes. Um, even if it wasn't in my, what I didn't think was in my best interest at the time or what I was desirable at the time. Which can be a pitfall too, I think, if you don't learn at some point to say no. That's correct. You have to be smart and strategic about it. And maybe it's later in life mm -hmm. that you do that. But there is almost, uh, I don't know, a change or a shift that you have to make at some point. Yes. If you say yes too many times, then you are spreading yourself too thin. Yeah, the most successful people say no more than they say yes. Um, and then Brene, Brene, Brene Brown taught me how to say no in a way that would be comfortable for me and for other people. So I do think, and I've, and I've gotten better about that. I still have a harder time saying no professionally to things, but I I used to be, a I'm, I was a um, professional over planner and over scheduler and I was miserable. And I was, I mean, I was going all the time and, you know, I was never one to turn down a good happy hour and was never, you know, one to turn down a good walk in, in Queenie Park and, and, but I was exhausted. And now I have a better balance around my self-care and my needs and being able just to say like, I wish I could, but I can't. What is it that Brene Brown said or uh, taught you how to do it that made it better or easier? Yeah, and I think it was just, I think I, I used that phrase from her. Like, I wish I could, you know, I wish I could help out. Please ask me, you know, she's, you know, she's like, she goes, it's all about timing, right? Like, they could ask the same thing two different months apart and one will be yes and one will be no. It depends on what else is going on in your world. So, you know, I really wish, Cynthia, that I could help you out. Unfortunately, now it's just not the best time for me, but please ask me again because it is something that I'm interested in helping with. It's a great, easy tip yep. uh, for anybody listening to start using. <laughs> yeah, lots of good tips from Brene Brown. You can't you can't go wrong there. Well, when you said listening to the universe, I kind of you put yourself out there and you have to listen. So by putting myself out there over the last few years, I've had uh, somebody we talked about, Sarah Stock, love yep. her. Yep. She sent me a book and it was Oprah's, one of Oprah's books, compilations of um, interviews and statements from others. I don't know who said this, but it was literally life will whisper to you. So this happened in my life personally, at least once, one major time I can think of, but life will, ha will whisper to you and it will keep whispering. And if you don't listen, eventually it will shake the crap out of you to make you listen. It will force you. Yeah. So to keep your mind and your heart and your spirit open to listen and potentially kind of like you did, I'm never going to own my own business. Never. Been. Well, maybe you have to shift the and joke say, was on me. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep, the universe thought that was very funny when I repeatedly said that out loud over and over and over again. Don't be afraid to, if it feels right, go back on mm -hmm. what you may have said at one point, uh, if it's right for you. Yeah, that's right. It's okay to change your mind. And, and again, I'm doing it a certain way, right? Like I think some of the lessons I did learn growing up, like I've chosen not to have employees. I've chosen to do 1099s, right? I've chosen to do contract workers for a reason, probably, because I've seen some other things happen. So, but you can, again, like I'm doing it the way I, I'm comfortable doing it. Right, right. What works for you, what works for your business, and really what works for your clients yes. uh, continues to add benefits in those ways. Agreed. Something you had written about was that you had a 10-month employment mistake <laughs> i did and i know we talked about and maybe this is related because i also want to go back and ask about that first time you said you got laid off mm -hmm. like what you learned from that mm -hmm. and, and just kind of how it happened the story behind it are those related are these two different situations um let me think about that yes they are related because i did take yes they are related so the first one i got laid off the 10 month stint came was the next job after that um so i had again i 
fallen in like and got the VC backed bug. So the company network solutions that I was working for that I was employee number one laid off at was VC backed. So when I went in out to search for a job, I was like, I want fast paced, smart people, VC backed, all of that sounded great. And so I chose a company here locally um, that I will not name, but but I will tell you that they sold hol- uh, holistic and natural pet food. And I, but the, uh, they were VC backed. One of the boxes I hadn't checked on my resume yet was managing an international team. And I had wanted to work for a company um, when I was in the e-learning space. And I applied for a job at, uh, for EMEA. And I didn't get the job because I didn't have any international sales leadership experience. So they were going to let me run Canada. And I was like, okay, so like, I guess it's sort of international experience. I'm like, it is a different country. It happens to be on our continent, but okay, I'm gonna, I'll be able to check the box. So um, I was going to run the inside sales team. I was going to run the Cana- Canadian team. It was going to be VC backed. The CEO and the COO at the time had were, I called them guns for hire. They had just uh, turned around Briar's ice cream. Apparently Briar's ice cream had been in trouble at one point. I, who knew? How could ice cream I know, be in trouble? I know, but apparently they had, maybe they weren't profitable, but <laughs> so they had just come from their turnaround gig at Briar's ice cream. And so I was like, this is great. Female sales leader. I was like, check the female sales leader box again. Here we go. And I got in there and I was like, it took me about four weeks to do the like four to six weeks to do the what have I gotten myself into thing. And I was like, dog and cat food, not sexy requires FDA approval. I was also in charge of distribution, like of communicating distribution situations. So I was on the ops, I, I moonlighted on the ops team. So when we ran out of ingredients, cause this was all like, these were all specialty ingredients. And if you were missing one ingredient, then that shut production down. And then you had to call the distributors and say like, hey, I'm not shipping that, you know, chicken dog food because the barley didn't come in or whatever, <laughs> so like, it was awful. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so not sexy. This is, I had no idea. It was a distribution model. I didn't really fully understand that at the time. I'd never dealt with that anymore. It was CPG and I'm like, and I was just miserable. And so about four months in, I was like, this was a mistake. And so the other thing I say to people is, again, self-awareness is critical. I knew I needed to get, I go, I needed to get back into software. Like I didn't realize, I thought it checked all these boxes. And so I was like, I have, you know, I'm going to do this and it's going to be great. Again, the people were as smart as I thought that they were. They were dedicated. The product was high end quality. You know, everybody was good. People were good, but the but the model didn't work for me. And this, I was just like, I just can't, I just can't get passionate about holistic dog and like dog and cat food. Although I owned a dog and fed the dog that 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 dog food until she died, and it was so that was good. That was high quality food. Um, so I started looking for a job at about the four to five month mark, um, and then. Uh, rolled, yeah, and then then got out of that and rolled into um, a, a back to SaaS world. So it wasn't it wasn't the job that I ended up losing my the second job I lost from I lost my job from. But uh, no, but I yeah I rolled out of that experience. And I think part of that so the lessons learned from losing my job um, it really does it really does ding your self esteem. Um, I found that I took um, I was my brother owns a has a lake house down in um, in southern Missouri at Lake Stockton. And I was already scheduled to go for the weekend. Um, I walked in. So I, we had been bought by another, uh, the the uh, company network solutions had been bought by the web.com friends. And um, I drove all the way from Wildwood, Missouri to Belleville to go to work. And um, I walked in, uh, I don't know, midweek. 
And my boss had put time on the calendar for early first thing that morning, but it, it happened that night before and I hadn't seen it. And so like I was in like exec row, like it was my office, then the VP of HR, and then he, I worked for the COO. And um, like, I literally didn't see it until I got in and I was already late for the meeting because it was supposed to start at eight and I was in at eight ten, And so I was like, I flew into his office and the VP of HR was there as well, a woman. And again, I, I knew that there might be some cuts coming as a result of being acquired. And so I walked in and I was like, I'm so sorry, whatever. And I have my pen and my paper and whatnot. And then he proceeded to tell me that I was going to be employee number one, let go. <clears throat> and then my team was going to be to follow and that I was not going to get to say goodbye to my team. I was literally like, they were going to pack my office for me and courier the things back to my house. Um, I happened to be going through a divorce at the time, which both of those individuals knew I'd kept it sort of under wraps. And so I remember um, Stacy, the VP of HR, walking back to my office with me. And I had had a good relationship with her. I'd disclosed to the COO that I was going through divorce soon after, like soon after I had started. And he had told her, I'd asked him not to tell anybody, but he had told her as the HR person. And so she had disclosed to me that she had known. And I remember walking back into the office and just looking around because I had books and all my things. And she's like, don't worry about it. We're going to pack it all up and, and bring to you, which also felt very degrading, right? Like I wasn't trust, like, you know, they'd already shut all my access down. You know, my computer was not going with me. I wasn't going to get to say goodbye to my employees. I had 50 employees in two states. I had three sales teams in uh, Belleville and two in Scranton, Pennsylvania. I wasn't going to get to say goodbye to my coworkers. He was, the COO, unbeknownst to me, was walking into a room to let my coworkers across the country know that I had been let go. Um, and I remember sitting there just crying in front of Stacy. I was like, I was like, I can't, I go, I can't do this. I kept saying, I go, we can't lose the house. I can't lose the house. I have a, I, I had an 11 year old at the time. And I was like, and I thought like, we're going through the divorce, he already knew. But I thought like, I can't lose the house. I was like, I can't lose the house. She goes, we're, we're gonna take care of you. We're gonna take care of you, we're gonna take care of her. I didn't hear anything that was said that morning. I mean, she's like, I said, I was just like, I was just in a daze. And I had, I had to drive 50 minutes back to Wildwood. And I said to her, I'm like, I go, I don't think I heard anything that you said other than I'm like, I've been fired. And she's like, when you like reach out to me in the next few days, I'll go over everything again or whatnot. And I was like, okay. And it was just such a sinking feeling. And one of my very close coworkers who worked in Scranton, Pennsylvania at the call, he, he ran the call center. He was the head of the call center there. Um, Brad, he reached out to me while I was still in the car after he'd heard. And then he reached out to me every day for six weeks, every day, five days, five to six days a week, every day. How was your day? How is it going? I don't, you know, it's funny. I don't, I don't even know if he'd ever been laid off before, but I needed that call every day. I looked forward to that call. And what I learned is like, you can really only job hunt about three or four hours a day. It's exhausting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is, it is exhausting. It is like, you know, going through and then again, like the internet wasn't what it is today. So it wasn't as easy. There weren't Slack groups and all these other things. And, and, and again, like I hadn't ever worked, like I had never worked locally either. And so, um, I had, you know, I had, uh, like all of like, uh, like even, even business training library was a local company we sold nationally. Like I'd never worked for a company like even locally. So it was a big, you know, but I was, I was better prepared the second time. This, the first time was just, it really does catch you off guard. And I do think that perhaps I took the job, the pet food job um, out of not, I didn't feel desperate. I, I got a really nice severance package. The, the head of HR, the chief HR officer out of Herndon, Virginia called me that afternoon and um, I'd had a special relationship with him. We kind of had taken to each other early on when he came to visit the store, uh, the office. And I said, and George had said to me, like, we're going to take care of you. And they did. Um, they took care of me big time financially. Um, it really, he said, you know, it really, this wasn't anything that you did. And, you know, I understand the circumstance that you're kind of in. I think they took pity on me a little bit. Um, but 
you did have to, you know, you did have to get up every day and shower. Right. Right. You could you could you could job search in your running shorts and your T-shirt, I decided. But you did have to shower every day. I did my job search in the morning and did self-care in the afternoon. I went to the gym. I worked out. I went for walks. I did hiking. You know, I was, you know, was home when my child got home for the first time ever. When my child got home from school, I was there for the first time ever. Um, but I really felt like, you know, your full time job does become looking for a job, but it can't be eight hours. It's just too mm -hmm. exhausting. Um, and, and the other thing is, like, you're going to need your network. Like, I wasn't one that asked for help at that point. Um, and so, you know, reaching out and asking people and telling it was embarrassing. You know, it was embarrassing, even though it wasn't performance related, it was embarrassing to say, you know, I'd been again, I'd been I was the you know, I was the majority income provider of my family. Um, and so and now I was about to be a single person. <laughs> um, and that was really scary. So um, the woman across the who lived across the street was the CEO of the American Red Cross for the majority of Missouri. Mm -hmm. um, and she was the breadwinner of her family as well. And so I, I leaned on her a lot. Um, I did we did a lot of drinking on each on her patio <laughs> and my deck over several weeks. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like, once you've been through those experiences, and, and I'll be honest with you, I was not I was not the compassionate, empathetic person when someone, you know, let me know that they'd lost their job if I'd never been through it. And I was like, oh, you'll find a new job. I did not know what you needed. And then mm -hmm. now, so now I'm the first person to reach out when that happens. And how can I help you? And let me make introductions and let me take you. And here's a bottle of wine and all the things that I know that you're going to need. Sounds like I, I sometimes it's hard to look back and say blessing in disguise, but you learned a lot. It was a and yeah, it, it was. A, it, I want to know that it was necessary for growth, but it but it. <laughs> But it definitely supersized the growth in a very short period of time. What's interesting, and I wrote this down from uh, earlier, you mentioned, you know, you worked for women. Mm -hmm. So we'll go back to Miss Fitzgerald yep. and Pam, but Pam didn't. Pam didn't work didn't out for butt. me, but I had lots of other female, I had a lot of other good female role models in, in executive roles. And it sounds like the neighbor and so many people stepping mm -hmm. in sometimes, and I don't, I don't know if it's so much today, but it's not long ago where you'd hear a lot of miserable stories about women working for women mm. sounds like that's not something you came across no it actually isn't something i came across um i can't i really i can't think of a bad experience um i think i don't know whether it was, I, I don't know why that is to be honest with you because you're right there are a lot of bad experiences out there um i think i don't know I, maybe it was my confidence level and my like i don't give a shit attitude about that like you know i mean really like i i I've I probably never supported women as well as I needed to early on. I'm much better supporter now than I used to be. Um, because honestly, like I was I was happy being part of the boys club, mm -hmm. right? I again didn't golf, just like you mentioned you didn't golf. So the golfing thing was a big disadvantage for me. But like I was the first to jump at happy hour and drink a beer with the guys. I loved sports, so you could sign me up for all sporting events live or or you know televised um so i and i and i didn't feel i felt like and the guys accepted me so i actually had that network of men um i had a very strong network of men who supported me and that i could reach out to uh, of the um this the sales leader roundtable that i built there was only one other woman lisa the rest were men um and i was very comfortable in that environment so maybe it was just because i wasn't paying attention <laughs> mm -hmm. maybe maybe i had bad experiences but i didn't see them as that or they didn't they didn't you know, occur to me, or I didn't see any jealousy or some of the other things that you talk about, I really didn't feel like I had a bad experience working for or with women. Were you, you mentioned uh, fitting right in with the guys. Was that mm -hmm. ever intentional or was that just more you? I think that was just me. Um, again, I was very athletic growing up. Um, I played on women's sports teams, but then I started playing racquetball at a pretty young age and I, I had a sponsorship with Head. It was, I traveled. 
Um, I played for money um, back in the day. Uh, at the open level, you played for money. So, and again, although I was playing women, I was around a lot of male athletes in a very like intimate type of setting. I mean, weekend tournaments, same people over and over and over again. We traveled together. We worked out together. You know, we played, we played together um, on and off the court. So that was very natural for me. And I also think like being in that real estate world, where the majority of that has been as well, like being an office rat and growing up and hanging out, <clears throat> hanging out my dad's office, you know, was he was having meetings and as a broker, he got calls at night. So like, you know, we're watching Dukes of Hazard, and a call comes in from a, <coughs> from, a real, and right, from a real estate agent, you know, needing some advice. <coughs> we had a, a salesperson on before who talked about something similar. But, uh, you know, maybe she didn't golf, maybe she didn't there might be certain things where she may, she actually does golf, but certain <coughs> things where she wasn't necessarily invited first That's right. or a part of. So what mm -hmm. she talked about then was, well, I'm gonna be the one to organize mm -hmm. it and coordinate yeah. it, which it sounds like with your sales group. Sounds round table, yeah. absolutely, I need to do that. Um, in other cases, I would just be like, hey, like where are we watching March Madness this year? Um, so yeah, I really, I think I learned from both. Like I really, I'm not one of those women that's like, you know, anti the boys club. I think there's a lot to be learned, like you said, from their ability to network and again, like things roll off their back. They don't take things personally. They can have a bad business experience and that doesn't impact a relationship. So I think there's a lot of positives to be learned from that network and how they network with each other. Yeah, I joke with my husband, he's a he's a big yeah. jokester and he'll literally say a joke will come back to him and he'll be like why are you doing that because you just said this and he totally <laughs> forgot that he just said that so i think men are very good and yes. that's probably potentially a detriment that women that we yeah, need having to a work short on. memory is a superpower <laughs> right <laughs> in the right instances a big superpower so for us who can adapt and try to take pieces from both of who we are naturally but learn that we can be even better and stronger agreed um you mentioned something again thinking leading up to this podcast you talked about giving selflessly can lead to abundance and i is that what we were talking about earlier on about early on saying yes i'm going to do it yes i'm going to do it yeah i think it's the 30 minutes for everything thing um you know i also give back within the industry so i'm mm -hmm. a mentor for um an org a, a company here that's an early stage um backs early stage companies they're an accelerator so capital innovators i'm a mentor for them um lindenwood has an entrepreneurial um major now and and uh, department and i mentor for them and i teach junior achievement because they have a financial curriculum every every grade levels curriculum and junior achievement has a financial aspect and i want i think again we don't they're not teaching it in school most parents don't know how to manage mm -hmm. their own their own finances so they're not teaching it to their children i was my brother and me were we were uh, um very 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 lucky to have been taught financial literacy and financial acumen at a very early age and so i feel like those are those are the things that i feel like i have a responsibility to give back because i did learn things differently than other people learned them and so i think it's my responsibility to teach others what i was what i was taught mm-hmm I, I relate to what you said earlier about becoming more aware about how to help, but also helping women and thinking through having mentors, being a men, you know, being a mentor yourself. Are there instances, or, or I guess, how have you transitioned into that helping women more or mentoring? And are mm -hmm. there certain times you can think of that it was really successful or shaped how you mentor women today? Yeah, it's funny. I don't think when you're in the moment, I don't think I always am cognizant of it in the moment. Um, but 
you know, over the last few years, women have reached out to me and some men too, but, but a lot of women have reached out to me, um, either through LinkedIn or, or through email and told me about the impact that I had on their career or their life, which was a little bit like surprising because some of these had happened years earlier. Um, and so, and it's always very, it's always very rewarding and, uh, and humbling. Um, and it's really nice to hear. So, you know, one of the things I always say to people is like, you know, if, if you think about somebody, share that, because I think that's really, you never know what people's people are going through or what their day is like. So if someone looks nice, compliment them. If they helped you, let them know, um, because I don't think we always do that. And I think it's, I, I think women might be more apt to do that than maybe men, um, which is why maybe I get reached out to by former female employees more often. Um, but I do think I, in fairness, I think I probably put myself out there a little bit more with, with women that are, that work for me. Um, I've had, and there are very few, there are very, like I said early on the very, very first, one of the very first things I told you was very few women hunters, female hunters. And so I think those people I tend to gravitate towards, spend more time mentoring because I know that it's harder for them. Um, and I know that that's a bigger risk for them. Um, but I, but a lot of the women, and I think this came from kind of my upbringing with my family and my mother out earning my my father at times, and then me out earning my husband at times. Um, there, I've I've worked with a lot of women who out earned their husbands, and we had a lot of we have a lot of those after work conversations, as I call them, right? When everybody else has left and you're still there, and they toggle into your office, you know, exhausted at the end of the day, or we go grab a glass of wine, because I don't I think like again I was I saw it modeled, <clears throat> and I don't think a lot of women see it modeled, right? And so a lot of times, the first time that, that they know of anybody, like they know I out earned my husband at some point. I tell the story about my mother out earning my dad at points. And so I think a lot of times they come to me for that reason. Like, how do you handle this? Um, you know, how does that work in the family? How does that, you know, how does that shift power? Um, and I think I have, I'm happy to have conversations about how to close your deal, but I'm also happy to have those conversations, right? About how do you handle that? you know, that situation when, you know, again, it may not have started out that way, right? Like your partner may have been out earning you. And then over time, as you've gotten better at your job and taken on bigger jobs and sold more and gotten that million or million and a half quota, all of a sudden now you're out earning the person, you know, that you sleep next to. And it is a different situation. And I think it does shift the power a little bit. And so I have a lot of those conversations too. Um, I particularly, I mean, I, I think specifically about two people that I've had that conversation with, one Rhonda and the other one Becky, um, who I, who those were new situations for them. And I said, like, it is a different, it is a different situation. And and it's funny because I, I jokingly say like, you know, men have a lot of, that's, that's a lot of pressure, right? When you're the, when you're the main, the primary earner in your family and maybe you maybe your partner stays home and maybe they don't, maybe they're working a job that doesn't make as much money, but you do feel that pressure and women weren't raised to, to feel that, right? I mean, a lot of times, I mean, in the, in the ages that we are and the people that I mentor that are closer to my age, our fathers were probably the, the the income earners, the primary income earner. I just happened to grow up in a different situation. And my dad was the primary income earner for a very long period of time. I mean, my mom was teaching school. She wasn't making any money. Um, my dad was absolutely the primary earner. But then he wasn't the primary earner, right? And so um, that was a, you know, that was a different you know, that became a different different situation. My dad was very budget oriented. My mom would be like, now I can afford to buy you this sweater that you want. And I was like, sweet. 
Um, so like, you know, just, just how we spent money, you know, differed a little bit because my mother now had more control of, more control of the finances of the house and more say over the finances of the house. Um, I had a, a former employee, Maggie, reach out to me recently through LinkedIn and I've been having a really cruddy day and she reached out and just said, Hey, like, I'm about to do interview for my first sales leader position. And I'm not sure I would have had the courage to do that if you had not been my, you know, my first sales leader and the things that you brought to the table for me. And I'd really had a bad day. And I was like, I reached out to her. I said, you never know. I said, who knows why the timing was the timing? I said, but you never know. And I said, thank you so much for reaching out and saying that. You had no idea that today was the day that I needed to hear that. But just the fact that you reached out and said it was the most important piece of that. Um, and, you know, I've been following Becky's career since she left, you know, she worked with me at, at the e-learning company and um, I became a reference for her as she left that company and went to work for a different e-learning company, um, made President's Club her first year. Um, and I, but when I talked to her boss, um, you know, I said to her, I, I said to him, it was a him, I said to him when I, when I did the reference check for her and he goes, how can I best support her? And I said, tell her what she needs to know and get out of her way. And I said, if you'll do that, she will perform for you. I said, but she cannot, do not micromanage her or even even manage her really. Like she's smart enough that she knows when to come for help. She'll come for help when she needs help. And and I saw her post on on Instagram that she'd made President's Club that first year and I called her. And and we still have sushi, we, did, we like to do sushi together. So we still have sushi occasionally together. Um, but I think about all, yeah, I mean, I think I probably see the, see the challenges that they're gonna face. And because there's so few female hunters in the world that I live in, it's easy to gravitate towards them. Um, but I also have like, you know, I've also built myself a little entrepreneurial female network, not just my women's sales pro group, but also um, other women that own their own businesses here in St. Louis. I tend to spend time with those folks um, and make sure that we've, you know, that we can support each other. Like you said, referring business to, you know, thinking about my whole network, but making sure that we're including women in that when we, when we, you know, support so we can support each other and refer business back and forth. That's everything that the Women's Sales Pro Group is really about. Um, the person who runs that group, it's very specific. We don't compete with each other. So everybody in there has a different swim lane so that we don't compete with each other and we can collaborate. Mm -hmm. So we can bring each other in on projects and use each other when we need to. Um, and so, you know, and my very first, con we do an annual conference. My very first conference, I became a member, thanks to Mike Weinberg, who told Lori Richardson about me and said she should be part of your group. So he referred me and a man actually got me into my women's sales pro group. But our very first conference in Minneapolis in 2019, right before the pandemic, um, we teach each other too. So we run our own sessions. So the, the members teach each other in, in that during that three day conference. And I had never seen the, a vulnerability at that level. I'm like, I was like in tears. I'd called Judy Syndicus, who runs the Capital Innovators, when I left and said, I've never had an experience like this. Like women openly talked about what they were charging, what they were making. Uh, we had a woman get up and say that she like basically went bankrupt the year before and how it felt and how she worked her way back into where she's at today, but that she literally almost like a one bad business decision almost took her under. And they were, I mean, I just not seen that kind of vulnerability ever shown. I mean, we definitely didn't see it from the men <laughs> in my network, but, and I hadn't really seen it from the women either. And it was just like, I mean, there were like, there were multiple sessions where tears were coming down, not just the speaker's faces, but the, but those of us who were participating, because it was just like, I mean, you just, your heart went out to them and you just couldn't believe that they were bold enough and brave enough to share their story in that way. But they shared it because they loved us. And they didn't want us making the same mistakes that they had made. And they thought, if I can save one person from, you know, the things that I've gone through, um, you know, one person whose partner had died of cancer 
and how they literally had took, taken a six month sabbatical from their consultant business, consultancy business and the fear that went into that. But they had, they said they just knew that they couldn't be good for their clients until they got good with themselves. Um, just, it was a, it was a really amazing experience. So I think like, as I've spent more time, like, so I'm giving and getting, right? Like I'm still mm -hmm. giving and getting it particularly from women. So I do feel like it's my responsibility to give back, um, but I probably give back maybe a little harder with with women coming up in sales because it, it isn't an easy sport. <laughs> right. <laughs> it isn't an easy sport to be a participant in. Well, I think I, I liked a lot of what you said there. The, and it also circles back to what we talked about earlier is about really knowing yourself or and knowing yourself enough to be yourself. So in those groups, mm -hmm. those women, know themselves and are being themselves right. in those groups to They're be vulnerable authentic. right yeah. yep. and you you give out you took so mm -hmm. much away from others yes so you give out so much for others to learn but you also then because you've taken that wall down you're able to accept so much more in and yes. just keep growing yourself and being a better version of yourself yeah i mean i think it's um i like the jim rome quote you'll be as successful as the five closest people to you and so i say um, i have a like a whole section of the book that talks about your circle matters and it does matter and i think you have to bring you know smart successful high quality people into your life and then i say you know there's a time you know there's if you believe in reason, season, and lifetime, there are times when you need to release people back into the wild. And again, it's going back to the, sometimes you need to know when to say no. And so when people are not gonna be supportive of your journey or don't wanna go on the journey with you, and it's fine, right? Like everybody gets to everybody gets to map their own journey out, um, but you want people uh, people on your journey with you that that are gonna be supportive, that get you, that again, that, you know, that aren't gonna be jealous or try to tear you down. Um, and so, you know, I feel like over time, you know, I've released people back in the wild. It's, I have, it's been sad to do so, um, but I've, <clears throat> but it's been necessary based on the circumstances. And so I think the other thing is really, you have to constantly be looking at your circle and are the people around you making you better? You know, like, that's what I want. Like, I'd love them to make me smarter too. But, but preferably, like my, my preference would be to be smarter, but I also like most importantly, I need them to make me a better person. I need them to challenge me when I need to be challenged, needed to call me out. Like, you know, I, I'll be the first person to call you out. You, you, I can promise you that. But you need to be able to call me out. And sometimes my strong personality doesn't allow for people to do that. Like it's intimidating, but I need to be called out as well. And, it, and, and if I need to be stopped, like I got called out last night by my son. I got excited when I get excited and passionate about something like I go, like, ah. and we were, and we were, he was explaining something to me and I, and I said something, he's like, he goes, you're interrupting me again. He's like, you do this. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, it really is from excitement and passion, not because I'm trying to be rude. But I said, I said, I said, I appreciate you pointing that out to me. Cause if I do it to you, I probably do it to other people. And it's something that I need to be more aware of. So I'm, I'm good with that. And that like, you know, like no matter who it is. And I do believe that my child makes me better as, it, it's a it's a role reversal. <laughs> I mean, you make them better when they're younger, and then they make you better when you're older. But yeah, but I mean, like you just have to surround yourself with the right people, and I think that's the most important thing. And and I guess the motto I will leave you with, the Christieism I will leave you with, is do the right things, and the right things will happen. And I think it's just that simple. There's so many things we could go back to that you spoke about that I wrote so many notes and I starred, but I don't know how you come back from that or, or keep going uh, beyond that. Again, we could keep beyond tortilla with a weird cheese or whatever you said with Emo's pizza. I wrote that down because that's hilarious. Beyond that, you said so many great things, but that's a great way to end it. So if we're thinking about hey, I need 30 minutes with Christy, or I think she, I our company needs her help, or I know people who need her help. How do we find you? How do people find you? And who are the right people to reach out? 
Yeah, I think, um, again, I do have 30 minutes for anybody. So if something I said resonated with you today and you've got further questions or you want some advice, I think reach out no matter what field you're in or where you're coming from. I'm great with that. Um, LinkedIn is probably a great way to find me. So I'm on LinkedIn. I have Instagram. Um, I have a Twitter account and I have a new YouTube channel. If you want to check that out and subscribe, I've been doing a lot of videos. Um, I have a fabulous videographer <laughs> who's been spending a lot of time with me taking videos and editing videos for me. So Full disclosure, I might be married to <laughs> you him. You might so be they, married yeah. to my videographer whose name may or may not be JJ. Who may uh, be in the corner. Who might, over be, this. might be over here on my left shoulder. Um, but no, so I, fi I finally, thanks to great video and thanks to JJ, I now have a YouTube channel as well. So <laughs> lots of places you can find me. I, my website is salesaccelerationgroup.com. I have a blog that's chocked full of content because again, I, I love to write. Um, I also write for Top Sales World magazine. I'm getting to be, I was in the May issue. I'm going to be in the August issue. So that's a great magazine in general. Some of the best, some of the best sales minds are writing for that um, across the world. So they're out of the UK. So um, I would plug them as well. There's lots of great places to go for sales resources. So, and I dropped a bunch of names today. Um, and a lot of those people um, also have books or podcasts or content that they're writing. So um, again, be a lifelong learner and, and reach out and, and you know, make your educate yourself, right? Be your own best professional development advocate. And this will be in the notes, but Christy is K-R-I-S-T-I-E, Jones as you would think. Yes. <laughs> and coming some point soon, whenever this is released, yes. maybe out your new book, Selling Your Way In. Yes. So to keep an eye out for that too. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for your story, your time, your vulnerability, Thank sharing you. so much. I know I learned a lot, had a fun time, and I'm sure those who listen will too. This concludes another episode of the She Lift Project podcast. To hear more episodes of the show, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about our mission of helping women reach higher levels of success, visit sheliftproject.com and sign up to receive the latest news, ebooks, videos, and more.